1: Hello and welcome to the long form podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm here with my co-hosts Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer, gentlemen. Hello. Good afternoon. Hey guys, it's really
2: beautiful outside.
1: Yeah, here, here we are in a tiny dark room. Yeah. Uh, who'd you talk to this uh, this this podcast, Evan?
2: I talked to Nancy Joe Sales, who is a writer for Vanity Fair. Uh, a lot of people know her as the author of the Bling Ring, upon which the movie of the same name is based. And uh, but she's she's done a lot more than that. She's done a lot of Celebrity stuff. She's also done a lot of youth culture writing and all the way up and down investigative reporting. And I will say that it was extremely fun just to go back and read a lot of her stories. That's what I did this weekend.
1: Yeah, Nancy Joe Sales, like early Nancy Joe Sales New York Magazine stuff is so good. It's so good. Uh, if you want to go back and have people reading about your life, you might want to start a newsletter with the good people at Tiny Letter. Um, they make a very simple email newsletter. You can get up and running in a few minutes. Uh, we thank them for their sponsorship. Thanks also to Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, you can go to squarespace.com slash longform and use the code longform9. Here is Evan Ratliff with Nancy Joe Sales.
2: So first of all, thank you so much for... Coming on the podcast.
3: Thank you for having me. Yeah,
2: um, I'm sure you're extremely uh, busy with new pieces, new stories, um, and also you've also had a lot going on this year. It seems like uh, around past pieces, but I actually wanted to start. We don't usually start uh, sort of chronologically, like taking people through their career, mm-hmm. but because like in in this year with the bling ring, like all these things have happened to you. And then I was going back and reading your old stories and, you know, you spent time with crack dealers. You've spent, I mean, you've been, uh, you've done some very hardcore stories and very dark stories. And then this one that's sort of like more of a fun capers, you know, has these other themes to it, kind of like blew up in this way. I actually wanted to start a little bit further back and and find out before we get to that, sort of like, how did you start out your career and how how did you get to this point where this this like movie event and all that kind of stuff has happened so i'm just i just want to kind of uh, find out a little bit about how you got into writing initially or reporting and writing
3: um well i was a little kid and loved to read you know i always read tons of books i have you know thousands of books actually in my home mm-hmm. These shelves that i had a friend build up around the they run around the length of the top of my apartment because i just i can't ever part with them you
2: know so <laughs> and you live in new york so there's a limited space right, to expand so into
3: that's also how they do it in amsterdam or in holland is that they store their books up on high so <laughs> somebody suggested that to me and it seemed a good save because i always had these keeper storage units where i just had these boxes and boxes of books and that was stupid because you can't look at them and you can't you know sometimes in, when you're writing things something will occur to you and, and you think oh god yeah that that Makes me think of that book that I read, and I want to pick that up and look at it. So I like having them around. So I just always read a whole lot and wanted to write something. I didn't really know what, but I went to uh, Columbia eventually in the writing program to write, you know, fiction. And I always wrote little stories when I was a kid and tried to tried to do that. Tried to write novels, but you know, I I didn't have. Uh, family support financially, so I had to make a living. I really fell into journalism after I graduated from Columbia as a way to kind of support myself. You know, I was doing the whole thing. I was living in Brooklyn with my then-husband. We were young marrieds and, you know, (laughs) living in Williamsburg. (laughs) Before it was Williamsburg, really. And, um, you know, trying to write a novel, but then I had to make money. So I was like, you know, copy editing for Soap Opera Digest and uh, oh, just what else did I do? I was uh, a fact checker for high Times magazine, which was very oh, interesting that's a good there gig a lot of, yeah there were well there were, yeah there was a lot of there were a lot of uh, there was a very smoky office, and there was a lot of um interesting facts in the magazine at times It's amazing
2: of, that high Times has <laughs> fact checkers. I wonder if they still have fact checkers
3: Well, I had a lot of interesting conversations <laughs> about the facts the magazine because Um, Like, I remember one in particular was they said that it has long been known that marijuana eases the pain of childbirth. I thought, well, you know, maybe that's true. You know, so I looked into it and couldn't really find any hard, you know, evidence of that. So I kind of went to them and uh, whoever the writer, editor was and said, you know, I'm not even sure this would maybe even be, you know, like – a legal issue because what if some woman who's you know in the middle of having a baby starts puffing on a bong or something and passes out or i don't know so i had all these and they were just like dude take everything so seriously you know so it was just really it was really an interesting kind of um yeah that was an interesting office i don't want to I don't want to get anybody in trouble and say what sort of went on in that
2: office, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I think people people can use their imagination. There High some Times and the
3: very large bongs. Yeah, I, I can say that without getting There was a the kind of bongs in there that like you didn't have to sit down.
2: A stand up bong. Do <laughs> you know they they have the best uh softball team? They're like High Times is known for having all these magazines play softball against each other, and High Times is like far and away they went I every year. That was
3: true even back then. And yeah. I think that they, uh, yeah, I think that they were really into softball more than maybe fact-checking. But yeah. um, it was a fun place. And so I did all these things and I did all these things and was just trying to write my novel, which was terrible. I look back on it now. I kept it just to, you know, shame myself every <laughs> now and then. I look at it and just like, oh, dear God. So um, I, you know, eventually started doing little pieces for then it was called mademoiselle and huh. I, I had you know sort of a friend of a friend of a friend hooked me up there and i don't know why but an editor at new york magazine named larry doyle was reading mademoiselle and read something that i wrote in there and thought it was funny and and kind of you know did a good job so he um he he gave me uh, an assignment to do something for new york little things it used to be called fast track the the front of the book so i started doing these you know little new york ma- magazine style pieces about things going on in manhattan and i remember i interviewed quentin crisp at one time and that was really cool he's such a great such a great character such a great new york <laughs> figure and uh you know did a bunch of those and then they let me do a bigger piece and blah 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 i finally got hired as as a writer and by kurt anderson when he was the oh, editor yeah. there and and when that happened i was just like I, it just didn't seem possible that I was getting this job. It just seemed like, how is this happening to me? I wasn't a person who had any kind of connections or I didn't know anybody. I was, you know, I just didn't really, I'd come to, I was lucky. I went to really good schools, but I wasn't, I had never had that networker schmoozer thing. I never really knew how to do all that stuff. Uh-huh. You get in on things. And so I just, it all just seemed like I was falling down the stairs backwards. And then once I was at New York, it was just like, I don't know. It just felt like I know how to do this innately. Like I just know how to do this and and I just started doing it. And, and you're right. I, I did have uh, a, a <laughs> even in the beginning, I had really various kind of assignments. Like my first cover story was a cover on Gwyneth Paltrow. It was the first cover ever done of her. And she was just starting out really. And she was in Emma and I had this very interesting conversation with her and uh, the guy who wrote Emma, God, he's a really great filmmaker, and I'm embarrassed I can't remember his name. Oh dear. Oh well. Anyway, I'll think of it. You know, the ram in my brain will pick it up <laughs> later, and I'll think of it. But um, yeah, and and people still kind of remind me of that piece because I, I, you know, I I tried to capture something about her that was that was sort of coming across in a in I tried to capture it in a kind of a light way. She was this, she was a New York private school girl. And where she was incredibly beautiful and just, oh, God, gobsmackingly beautiful and incredible to look at. She had this sort of entitlement thing, this sort of Spence Girl entitlement thing sure. that that I found, you know, really amusing. And so I tried to sort of get that across in the piece. And, um, you know, it was because it was a story about New York because it's for New York Magazine. So I tried to make it about New York and how this girl became the girl that she was now becoming from being a girl who grew up in New York in this certain rarefied world.
2: Yeah, it's almost like a type of New York character that yeah. that you're capturing in her.
3: Yeah, but I didn't want to do a straight profile because I always I've always found straight you know sort of puff pieces really dull. I just don't like to read them. So why should I write one? To, you know, once in a while somebody makes you do that and you have to do it for money or something. I I hope I haven't done that many, but I just have never really liked reading those things. So I don't want to do them. So I started talking to her friends. From private school uh-huh. and got some interesting stories about what, you know, young Gwyneth was like and um, not not like you're trying to, you know, not like you're trying to uh, undermine the person, but you're trying to really find out who this person really is, because when they sit down for you with you for uh, an hour or whatever to do their cover story profile, you're not necessarily seeing the real person, especially now when you get such limited time with them. But
2: Yeah, I was I was wondering about that. I mean, if because some of the some of the profiles I mean some of them are have been are are from earlier in your career but sometimes it seemed like you got incredible access the likes of which you would never get today at that time uh and then sometimes it seemed, and then but you also have sort of right around ones like like there's a Leonardo DiCaprio one I think that was a New York well, one actually, that's an Or was that intentionally you didn't want to talk to him?
3: Well no he was at, it was right after <laughs> It was right after Titanic. And, you know, he he wouldn't talk. Ken Sunshine, who was his publicist, wouldn't let him talk. And and I was supposed to do this story about how he was hanging out and running around town because he had d- been doing this. He had been really like just just going out every night to nightclubs and so forth and, and sort of getting in the gossip columns all the time. And so I was supposed to do this story about Leo's nightlife. Right. But I was not getting lucky. I was not finding him and I think that his publicists and handlers had probably told him you got to chill out and and stay home a little bit because people are talking about you. So he just was not around. And so I wound up doing I mean you say right around but right around sounds like, you know, a clip job. I did so, I tried to do something a little more interesting there. And no one would ever publish this story today. That story would I can't think of a magazine that would publish that story today because we just had a lot of fun back then. And the editors just <laughs> let us do a lot of crazy things. And I had this idea. I was sitting in a bar and I said, oh, I was sitting with my friend Greg. And I said, I can't find this, you know, guy. Well, what am I going to do? And he said, he was teasing me. He said, there he is over there. And I looked and there was this kid. He was probably about 20 years old. He was on some kind of, he was doing some kind of Wall Street job kind of internship. It was summer, I think. And he looked vaguely like Leonardo DiCaprio. And I said to him, I said, would you like to be Leonardo DiCaprio for a while? I was like, sure. You know, he was from the Midwest or something. And so um, I did this thing that a lot of people I think have done since, which is I pretended I was with him. I got a limousine because I really – the point of the piece is what's it like to be Leo? So yeah. we got this Leo kind of impersonator. <laughs> I, I used to be friends with this very large man who went by the name of Brick. And we pretended he was the bodyguard. And then I got Catherine Mann, who's a, a really great photographer, to pretend to be a paparazzi, and we went around town. But it was all sort of like on a budget, you know. So like the limo had a dent in it, and the driver had an accident. I'm not kidding. I'm not. It's really true. And we went to <laughs> we went to Planet Hollywood, but we went to Planet Hollywood t- because he uh, was apparently in talks at the time to buy it or something. So we're in there, and I I kept saying things really loud, like, "So Leo, what's it like being?" Leo now, Leo and and people were sort of looking like, oh my God, there's Leonardo <laughs> Capri. Oh my God, it's Leonardo <laughs> Capri, and like Catherine's taking pictures and and um people are just getting really excited and it got a little scary. And the publicist for the restaurant, who was like up in an office or something, came running down. It was night, but she was there and she said, you know, um, Keith Barish would like to fly out with <laughs> his, his helicopter from Long Island to talk to Leo because they were talking about buying the restaurant, you know, so. I said, Oh my God, this is getting out of control. We've got to get out of here. So people are like swarming us. Like swarming us. He the, the kid had a had a, a baseball cap pulled down over his eyes. And my friend Brick was like, Get out the way. See what you done to Leo. Now he wants to leave. You know? And so we're like we're we're like trying to get out of there. And my favorite moment was these little fourteen year old girls came over and looked up really, really close into his face and said, that's not leo and so then we're like running out to the car and everybody's like throwing themselves on the car and taking pictures it was really it and then the great you know line which you gotta use as the last line the kid and he gets in the car he says i don't like being leo anymore (laughs) the the beginning he really likes so anyway all these stories i mean it's all by way of saying i've always tried to not do the typical celebrity profile but at the same time in new york i wasn't just doing those i was also doing investigative pieces i mean that's that whole era that you're you're bringing up is also when the so-called prep school gangsters pieces started and um those were just you know th- those were like sort of life-defining pieces for me because i had i'd never imagined you know that this kind of thing was going on and i don't think anybody else had either now it's sort of not sort of known i mean people sort of know that that kids you know are are having these crazy lives and acting out in these these insane ways and stuff. But at the time it was really a new, a new kind of world that people were being introduced to. And it was very, very exciting for me to right. sort of get onto it. And and I had a lot of sources that I I went back to multiple times because we did kind of a series. We did High School Gangsters, which was about, if you haven't read the articles, it's about um not just I mean, the the sort of stereotype is white kids into gangster rap who like quote unquote, want to be black. But that's not really what it was about. It was a much more layered and complicated thing to me. It was about how hip hop culture was, you know, really changing our culture, yeah. and changing society and changing our language in good ways. Uh, in a lot of really good ways, a lot of really interesting friendships were being formed. And and it was this incredible, I mean, New York at that time was a lot of fun. It was a, It was, I had a lot of fun. It was like Cotton Club. I mean, you would go into Life Club late you know, late on a Thursday night when and some other kids I did a piece on, Justin, Sean and Richie, Jusky the DJ, Richie Akiva who now owns One Oak and Butter, and Sean Ragruda, who's a filmmaker. They were just kids back then and they were running these amazing parties at Lot Sixty One in Life. And you would walk in and it would be like Choom, 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 where the hell am I? God, this is amazing. It's Mariah Carey, Derek Cheater, you know, Andre Harrell, Russell Simmons. Puffy, as he was known then, um, Jay-Z, you know, and these beautiful, beautiful kids hanging out at these tables, dancing, singing all those lyrics to all these hip-hop songs. And it was just like, it was just such an exciting kind of world for me to report on. And I did a bunch of stories on the the mixing and the changing nature of things. and, And while sort of typified in a piece I did on Donald Trump, it was about Trump, but it was about... The night he spent at Puffy's 29th birthday party at Cipriani's where, you know, that's a that's a historical moment um, in New York social history, just like the Black and White Ball of Truman Capote or something. It was, it was this incredible room where you had like uh, literally royalty and then like heavy D. Right. You know, it was just this <laughs> it was just this incredible moment, and um, yeah, those were the days.
1: Hey, pardon the interruption. Uh, This is the co-host of this show, Aaron Lammer, with a quick word from our sponsors, Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace is a really simple way to get a website up and running from scratch. Uh, I used to make websites for people, and it nearly destroyed me. It's uh, harder than it looks, and they make it very easy. Uh, They've got a ton of really great templates for any kind of usage, Uh, very beautiful, minimalist design, Um, They've got an incredible customer support team um, to help you get up and running. Um, And best of all, you can get 10% off. That's 10% off if you sign up with the code LONGFORM9. So you're going to go to squarespace.com, sign up with the code LONGFORM9. They'll get you 10% off. packages start I think at just eight dollars a month, which is really quite good and if you sign up for a year you get a free domain name so thanks again to Squarespace for sponsoring this show. when you sign up, you help support this and, and make this possible. Uh, here's Evan and Nancy Joe Sales
2: and so when you when you were reporting on this I mean so you've you've you sort of like started out with aspirations as a novelist and then you sort of got into journalism just as a way to sort of support your potentially fiction writing and then you 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 say to yourself oh wait a minute this i can do this feature writing and then did they did you do a couple of pieces that had a sort of uh like youth culture and celebrity and then your editors started to say like you can do this stuff here's more or was it something that you thought like this is what's happening in the city this is what i want to be a part of this is what i want to report on like were you did you feel like you fell into writing about celebrities or that you kind of you kind of pursued it like, I think I know how to make this interesting, this thing that is often written about in, in an uninteresting way.
3: I just always felt, I mean, in the, be- in the beginning, and to some extent now, I guess, to, you know, I always sort of felt like um, a beggar at the table, like, give me a good story. I'll do anything. You know, I just, I you know, I don't think, I don't feel like I was calling the shots at all. But, um, you know, I got assigned, anytime I've been, a have gotten a celebrity story, I've been assigned it. I've never... I never really want to do those things. It's not that I don't see the value in it. And I try and when I do do them, I try as much as I can to elevate the genre. I mean, elevate sounds like a a snotty word. I don't mean it that way. But I try and try and make it about something that matters other than just like, wow, here she is drinking a cappuccino and look at her amazing closet full of cool clothes. I mean, like who cares about that? You know, it's just, I try and make it about culture and about celebrity and what, what the world we live in and, but those who get assigned to me. I, I mean, I'd much more much, much rather hang out with prep school gangsters, which I did a lot of because I was, you know, researching a book for them, uh, on them, which I, I have still to write, but, um, I, you know, started to feel like you can fall in love with a story. You, you know, it's a, a, a it's like this thrilling adventure um you can fall in love with a story you can and really it's it's sort of a a thing like falling in love with a person you can fall in love with these stories and um not that you lose objectivity or that you you can't see well just like with a person sometimes you fall in love and you, you think they're pretty much of a jerk <laughs> but you're still in love with them you know you I, that started to happen to me i started to have stories where i was like in a passion about them and it's, um, just felt this sense of adventure and excitement about finding out new things and, and, and meeting people that I, I never would have met in my normal life. Did it
2: come naturally to you to spend, uh, to be able to spend time with, with those people and i mean oftentimes like in the prep school gangster story when you're really out with them while they do what they do on many occasions in that story
3: well the crack dealer story well he had been the the crack confessions of a crack dealer was the name of the story he had
2: that was a vanity that was vanity fair piece right or that that was new york York also okay
3: we did a cover kind of uh issue on on cocaine is back but you know uh, from what I heard, it was it really never left.
2: Right. Was, <laughs> Somebody <laughs> says that, I think, in the piece, actually. I think
3: the crack dealer says that. He had been a private school kid. I thought he was so interesting because he was this private school kid who had, had every advantage, but he um, he had a lot of struggles uh, personally and at home and stuff. And he'd fallen into a life of of crack using and crack dealing in Times Square. So it was also a story about New York City at that era and and how – it was sort of the last remnants of Times Square and its sleazy incarnation. And the Disneyfication was, you know, happening. But it wasn't totally, I mean, I went to weird places with him that still existed in Times Square, you know, crack dens and all kinds of stuff. And in Washington Heights too. And yeah, at one point, um, he he sort of was, he was dealing with this drag queen named Karen. I think it's okay to say her name because I don't (laughs) even think that was a real name. But Karen was a very large drag queen um, you know, and not like she did not look like RuPaul. I mean, she was, you know, she was a Times Square drag queen. She, you know, they had this incredible bond, like almost like a midnight cowboy sort of relationship that was really fascinating. Um, that story would be a great movie, and it was actually optioned at one point. But yeah, One Night... He said um, he was drawing a map on the other side of a pizza box. They were staying in the home, the the apartment of one of their customers, this this guy named Iz, and, you know, doing crack, hanging out and eating pizza. And he's making this map. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, don't worry. You know, and then the next thing I know, we're robbing a crack house. I mean, I'm not uh, actively robbing it, but I am there when they are doing it. And it's. It, it was an ingenious kind of thing, actually. The, um, you, it's it's complicated. It's in
2: the rules. piece, yeah. But you it's just read the story. But... The plan. It's a good plan, actually. <laughs> really
3: good plan. Really, really good plan. And it would have been successful except that one amongst them was either incredibly stupid or incredibly smart because he he lost the proceeds, and we never knew if he uh, stole them or pretended not to get them. But yeah, it was sad because the the crack dealer was just feeling like a failure. <laughs> Plan and, did not come off,
2: and That's it wasn't it wasn't a failure of planning; it was a failure of execution. Right, but but exactly. in those in those moments, I mean, I'm I'm really curious. Like the story, like you, as a reader, you get completely caught in the story. But there's this element to it also, as you know, thinking about the reporting, where I I wonder, first of all, how did you get it so in with this guy that he just lets you hang around while he's dealing crack, smoking crack, and then pr- you know, planning to rob crack dealers, and then do you once you're in there, do you say to yourself, I have a limit? There's a place at which if he says, I'm going to do X, I'm not going to go. Like, I'm going to say, I'm out. I'm going home. Or it just seemed like you were kind of like, I'm going all the way with this. They're going to go rob this crack den. Like, I'm, that's part of the story I'm going with them. Like, what, what is it like for you when you're in the midst of that reporting?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting because I'm, uh, I have a 13-year-old daughter. I'm, I'm a mom now. So um, my life's a little different now. I can't do certain things that I used to do and I won't because they're dangerous or ridiculous or keep you out till five in the morning or whatever. But back in those days, you know, I was in my 30s. I was, you know, I didn't really have any, I didn't have even a pet. It's just like this was everything (laughs) I did. This was my whole life. This was what, like I said, it was this kind of passion to just find out these things and do these things and see these things and have these adventures and, and, and be able to report about life that, well, this was street life that, that, you know, rarely gets talked about. And, and so I, I just didn't, I didn't really have a lot of boundaries I think in those days about what you said, all those things, where where are your boundaries? I don't think I had any really. (laughs) And, and uh, it makes for, you know, you can really, if you really throw yourself into something, you can just really get a great story. You can also not have a life, which I didn't have much of, and um, that's okay because that was the life I was living then. But I, I never went on vacation. I never, I didn't, I never went on a vacation actually till this year. Like I never actually planned and chose and said, okay, really? let's look at orbits and see what. <laughs> yeah, like I never, I never did that before in my whole life. Yeah, I'm kind of a workaholic. I mean, I'm really into my daughter. We spend a lot of time together, and I, I focus a lot on her, but I love to work. I love this job.
2: You have ways, it seems like, to make a wide variety of people very comfortable around you, and I wonder if that's something that feels like it comes naturally to you. Like, you can hang out with an 18-year-old kid who's driving around New York, and you can also go into a poor black community in Bell Glade and kind of, like, chat with people there. Like, is that something that... You feel like you've honed over time, or is that something that you feel like that's that's what i can do i'm 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 good at at approaching people
3: you know it's funny because um, I think it's just my personality like you know every reporter has a different kind of personality, and the way that you approach your reporting and you know apply your personality to this process of getting people to talk to you is everybody is different, and everybody does it i think it's it's based you can't really learn it you see that's the thing. I didn't go to journalism school, but I wonder how they teach that because I don't think it's something you can teach. I think it's like it's just how you are with people, and people have different ways of doing it. Not everybody is, um, you know, somebody who's really great at getting people to talk is George Gurley who who used to work at The Observer and now works at Vanity Fair, Mm -hmm. and his pieces are always so startling because um, people just like, don't tell him all these things. Well, George and I could not be more different. He's, you know, I'm this, you know, sort of funky ass East Village, you know, big old red hair thing, and he's like this preppy guy with, you know, this kind of reserve. So why why does he have this skill? And if you say so, I have the skill. I don't know. I I don't know. It's like this thing that you can't really describe like when we were before this interview started we were talking about like how do you explain these things you can't really explain it you just are who you are and when kids or young people or journalism students approach me through my website or whatever and want to talk to me and say well how do you do what you do i just the only thing i really say to them is like just be yourself you just gotta be yourself and 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 be interested in what in these people and what you know people um people respond i think to feeling like someone excuse me so i think they respond to feeling like someone wants to listen to them that sounds so simple and straightforward but they just want to feel like someone cares and is listening to them and wants to hear what they have to say you know i never go with questions or i never write out questions i just do a whole lot of research about what's going on and then ask the questions that anybody would ask if they want to know what's what's happening and what how does it affect you and how do you feel about it? And what do you know about this? And what do you know about that? And you don't you, you don't need to, like, write out questions if you really are up on the thing in your mind, you know, I mean, maybe a few little notes here and there.
2: So you try to like if you go into one of these celebrity situations, do you try to read all of the celebrity profiles so you sort of know uh, everything you need to know about what they've been what's been written about them before or as opposed to like trying to go in cold and say like i'm going to treat this like i don't know anything about this person and really dig into them that way.
3: I mean obviously you have to have a certain amount of you know a certain amount of background on these people but not i don't I don't do too much just enough. Mm-hmm. And also you know you have to know the basics of course but are you talking about a, you're talking about a celebrity profile?
2: Yeah, I was I mean like i mean you sort of famously wrote this early profile of Paris Hilton or the Hilton sisters, like before they or right when they were sort of on the edge of becoming like this huge cultural phenomenon. And again, it just seems like you're like hanging out at their house and uh, in the Hamptons going into that. uh, It's just sort of surprising as a reader, maybe that you they're sort of letting you just kind of like be well, there actually, and it's kind of like do actually
3: kathy hilton <laughs> paris's mother told it's in the piece i think told me at one point you know if you ask any questions that we don't like we will have you removed <laughs> she was had security yeah yeah, I yeah. Said, oh, okay uh that was an interesting i mean paris there really was nothing to read about paris before that <laughs> well, because that was the first piece that was ever done on her and i had never actually heard of her yeah she was um once i you know once i knew that I had the assignment and I started asking kids about her, kids in New York, who I still had a strong connection with because uh-huh. of the, all the prep school gangster type stories. Kids knew her. Kids in New York all know each other. All know each so other. So they go out
2: to clubs and things or they from just From the know? street, oh.
3: from parties, from school events, from sports. New York schools, public and private, are it, it's like a world. They're very connected to each other. And, of course, they all knew Paris because she had gone to Dwight. Dwight is a private school on the Upper West Side. She'd gone to Dwight briefly, I think, and then left. Um, and, I, yeah, kids kids knew all about her. Because the family had been living in L.A. and then they moved to, to New York City. And so, but I, I had really, she wasn't really on my radar or anything. She was, um, Graydon, Graydon Carter, uh, had an editor at Vanity Fair get in touch with me. And I was still working at New York Magazine and said, Um, You know, Graydon wants you to do this piece on Paris Hilton. And um, wow, okay. I'd love to do a piece for Vanity Fair, of course. But New York Magazine, they were very competitive Uh at that time. I don't know how things work now, but at that time, because I see that their writers are much more, you know, they they write for a whole lot of people and stuff. But at that time, they really really were very... uh, they didn't like me to write for anybody else unless it was something really outside their genre. Like, I I was doing work for Vibe Mm -hmm. and stuff. But um, they said, no, you can't do it. You cannot cannot write for Vanity Fair. And um, so Graydon said, okay, I'll hire you. Come work here. And wow, okay, (laughs) that sounds good. I was was eight months pregnant, and uh, I had this, you know, I, I'm not a fashionista, and I it's funny that I write about these people in this fashionista world because I have no sense of fashion. I was wearing – I didn't – I was the largest pregnant lady who ever lived, and I also had no sense of what to wear as a pregnant lady. So, And I hung out with kids, so I went to some, some skaters because I knew they had big clothes. I went to some skater store on, like, Broadway or something, or Lafayette, and just bought these very large – Like hoodies and large balloony pants. One that was my maternity wear. One of which had a large dragon on it. I remember that. Nice. And so I go, I go to meet with Graham Carter wearing this absurd outfit, and um, he just, you know, didn't bat an eye. (laughs) There was nothing said about my absurd appearance or my pregnancy, and he just said, "Okay, well, here's these pictures that we shot of this girl Paris Hilton and her sister Nikki." That Dave uh, David LaChapelle shot, great photographer, one of my favorites also. And we've been paired a lot in, in pieces, and and so have I with Harry for different reasons, I think. But um, so I look at these Paris Hilton pictures, and I'm like, Wow, oh my God, who is this girl? I mean, she she's taken off her top and like given a finger to the camera. I mean, Paris seized her moment in a big way. Uh. You know, she she really knew that this was this was her moment. And they did this incredible shoot. And then, uh, you know, of course, you know, the whole thing, it's like, the whole thing about Paris, okay, she was this girl who was just like hanging out in nightclubs and and came on Graydon's radar because I guess people who knew him were telling him about her. Um, but it, once again, the piece, if you read it now, it's really it's really pre-Bling Ring in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that she became a victim of the bling ring because it's really about fame culture. Here's this girl. It's really about a girl who wants to be famous. For what? Oh, you know, whatever. I mean, like, she just wants to be famous. And it was this thing that I had been hearing kids talk about. But they want to be famous amongst themselves. They want to be famous in this kind of cool, underground way. Now, they want to be famous to, like, People in Russia on Instagram have never seen them before. You know, it's it's a whole different thing. But, yeah. She, so it's really it really wound up being a story about this girl who wanted to be famous and, and also her family, her um, her interesting, you know, family and their their life out there in, in Long Island. And, yeah, it was a very tense and weird afternoon
2: <sighs> And when you, so you started doing these these pieces for Vanity Fair, which is I mean New York's a big stage, but Vanity Fair is a little more national and also in the Hollywood world, I would assume is like a much bigger uh, thing. And do, do you did you feel like when you do pieces about celebrities, I mean, I noticed in a lot of them that you're not either uh, laudatory and sort of like seem like you're in love with them and in love with the culture, nor are they savage in any way? Like a lot of times the people hang themselves. Uh, and I, But I wonder if they notice that, you know, like if they read the story and say like, wow, I, to a certain reader, they come off as like really vapid, but they may not even notice that. This is a long way of asking, like, do you feel like you as a writer then get have gotten a reputation with people that when you go to do a piece, they kind of know pieces that you've done and they know what you're about? Or is it all just sort of like Vanity Fair wants to do a profile. They're going to send someone. It may be you.
3: You know, it's funny, that question about um, how people react. Um, I once did a story on, you know, I really try and just kind of, you know, experience them, you know, and and see what they're like and tell people what they're like. And there was this one person, I don't want to say who it is, but um, I I, I know what you're talking about. I I thought that she was amusing in a certain way. And I, I... I joked around about her a little bit in the piece and she's so she's so powerful and so, you know, on the top of her game and I could not possibly hurt her. In fact, the piece only helped her in a way. <laughs> um but I I did feel a little pang after I read it. I thought, oh, gee, that's that one was kind of I kind of poked fun at her a lot. And she sent me flowers. Oh, really? Yes. My house looked like like the Winter circle of a sea biscuit. Like she sent me these <laughs> huge, huge wreaths. And I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. And then conversely, Courtney Love, who I did um, a piece on a couple of years ago, I thought the piece was almost affectionate and certainly something more uh, positive than she's gotten a lot in the past and she absolutely hated it and she uh you know railed against me on twitter and, and all these crazy reactions and 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 I just um you know yeah so so you just never really you just never really know how somebody's going to read something but you know what you you can't worry about it and you can't care i mean um i do think that there are journalists and uh you know sometimes really good journalists who you know i think they have a different relationship to this whole thing like they sometimes i think that they see their their subjects as as potential uh friendships or or mm-hmm. or networking opportunities or something and and i just i i just can't think of it that way and i've never thought of it that way and i I'm not saying everyone does that, but I do know people who do that, and I just, I just think, how can you possibly sit down? Once you sit down in front of your, no matter how much fun I had with Courtney Love, and we did have a lot of fun. We traveled together. We went to England to this crazy ball where she performed, and the, amongst these, it was like Downton Abbey or something. It was, it was Goodwood <laughs> is the is the place. Goodwood, and the, the Earl of March is like you know bounding around and, and talking about Pimm's Cup, and it was just, it was just crazy and funny and we had a lot of like girl bonding and we had a really good time together but once I sit down um and write the thing I don't know that just all sort of that that I guess that informs the piece in some way but you also have to talk about how well you have to tell the truth and talk about how like as hard as I try I cannot make sense of this gibberish that she's talking about her financial situation how she's been robbed of a billion dollars and like crazy on on and on and on and on and i just i i can't pretend that any of that makes sense because it doesn't i mean you have to tell the truth and you have to and she didn't like that
2: yeah well i mean you say you have to tell the truth but i think you're right that i mean there's probably a certain type of in the same vein of a lot of people wanting to be famous there's a certain type of writer who would get in that situation and want to ingratiate themselves with those people whether to like Have a life like that or just to have a proximity to
3: journalists who have, you know, forged lives very much like celebrities from from their proximity to celebrity.
2: And some of them become
3: celebrities and they have TV shows and and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that that's wrong or bad or or makes them bad journalists, but it's just not who I am. I mean, I, I just can't. I never I never have ever maintained any relationship with any of these people. And don't expect to because I wouldn't I don't I always feel weird at these things. Like sometimes they do like the pizza and then they invite me to a party or something and you know, I don't wanna go. I know I'll just feel weird. I'll I, what am I doing here? I'm not <laughs> one of you. And I'm it's not that I I um I don't think they're good people or look down on them or something, but that's not my world, you know. Donald Trump Really loved the piece I did for about him for Vibe, although I mercilessly teased him. <laughs> he just really loved it, and he um, after that was offering to come pick me up in his. He was with Milani already. It was it was just like you know friendly. So pick me up in his limousine, take me out to dinner, and he wanted to fly me down on his private jet to Mar a Lago and see the Beach Boys perform. And I'm just like, I just. It's not that I don't like you, Donald. It's just that <laughs> that is not who I am. I just don't fly around on private jets and go to Mar-a-Lago. It's so.
2: not that I don't like you, Donald Trump. <laughs> I do like you, Donald Trump. It's something else. Well, this is all kind of like is a good lead into, I mean, you spent time writing about youth culture and all these flavors from the crack deal on the street to the prep school gangsters and everything in between, and then writing about celebrity, and then this... Uh, this bling ring thing kind of comes up. And how how did you first get into that story? Is that a story that you identified or that an editor said, hey, this is you, you should go cover this?
3: The bling ring was a, a big story almost immediately. Mm-hmm. It was, um, it, there, there was a, a, a like a two-page thing on it in the New York Post, which I read every morning, <laughs> which all journalists read every morning. <laughs> um, even though it's this kind of kooky paper, it's just like a thing that, You know, you do like brushing your teeth. You read the New York Post every morning. So um, there was this two page thing already on the bling ring. And I said, wow, this is like, you know, a friend of mine said at one point, like, it's like, it's like somebody is, it's like like you're having a weird dream about your life, or it's like somebody has made this up as like a fake Nancy Sales story. (laughs) You know, it's just kids and crime and Paris Hilton and people that I'd done stories on, you know um were the victims so it just seems so crazy and also that that picture that amazing picture of the two girls running out of out of the police station and they're they've got like their Juicy Couture sweatpants on and their Ugg boots and you know their tattoos on their midriffs and they they've got sunglasses on at night and this like like billowing like hair and they're all like you know it's just the whole thing was was just too perfect in a way so i i you know it was already a big story in the news i mean the details of it were not known yet but certain details were i mean the the basic outlines of it were known because people had been arrested so there were there were cops to talk to and there were lawyers to talk to and and so forth and um yeah i just said to my editor at vanity fair dana brown look at this and he said oh yeah you got to do that (laughs) so i flew out to la almost immediately and um, just started reporting.
2: and But this was a case where there was already like a real scrum of reporters on top, like TV and uh, like you were really entering a world in which like this was already getting massive coverage. And how did you kind of like find ways around that or get, because it seemed like you got access even though that was true.
3: Well, part of what the blaming story became about for me was the story of the story because there was so much media interest in it and there was so much... Uh, media uh, opportunity for the people involved in which which they were all sort of into cops lawyers victims kids like people in the in the DA's office I mean everybody was sort of into this whole thing (laughs) and it, it was just like kind of the perfect story for our time in a way because it was I mean I don't mean to give it too much weight in terms of its importance, like it's we're not talking about uh you know Fukushima or Syria or something i mean right. for goodness sake i'm i'm I have a little more perspective than that but i i I do think that it was culturally speaking a story that you know was an opportunity to talk about all kinds of things going on in our culture, including our obsession with fame, not only on the part of the of, of the kids who, who stole, but uh, on, on the part of, like, everyone around them, including their parents. So um, some of their parents. I don't want to include – I'm not saying, like, every cop, every parent. But, yes, a lot of people around these kids were using this, especially the lawyers, were using this as an opportunity to get into the media. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would go to the courthouse on a hearing day or an arraignment or something, and there would be everybody sort of actually fighting and really, you know, getting very – sometimes very – uh, you know, intense about it with because there was only a certain amount of seats. I mean, this is not the O.J. trial. Like, what are we doing here? Right. This is like 18-year-old stealing shoes. Like, what is this? Why is everyone so obsessed with this? And and yet, um, there they were. You know, and it was. <laughs> it's funny because uh, I don't know that they'd they'd really like to admit it at this point. But think of a news organization, TV print media online everybody was trying to get into that room and and talk to those kids and yeah how did I get to talk to them when no one else did I'm not really sure I mean I think it goes back to you know it's that it's that um, that ineffable thing that that reporters can do that we were talking about before like I don't know I don't know but I I did, and 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 the the interviews turned out to be really really interesting, <laughs> yeah. not just about not just about um, the case itself, which is a really interesting case. I mean, it really is kind of crazy. And and they, one of the things that's the craziest about it is that they were so successful for almost a year. They stole over three million dollars. These are teenagers, and not like not teenagers who go to like good private schools. These are teenagers at an alternative high school, who over the course of I don't mean I don't mean to say like you know what I'm saying they they were not they were not a students at you know Horace Mann or something these are just kids from the valley who over the the course of a year stole over 3 million dollars worth of shoes clothes jewelry luggage art um just an inordinate amount of stuff
2: from famous people from, essentially. from the
3: most famous people at that time say what you will about the nature of their thing <laughs> right. Paris Hilton and lindsey lohan were incredibly famous at that time still are and this is you know this is just they just had these incredible halls of stuff and um it was it was just so fascinating that they were so good at what they did and at how they figured out how to do it through the use of the internet. I mean, all of these things sort of played into what I think was fascinating pe- people about it.
2: And did you feel like when you got there, I mean, did you have any, do you have moments of doubt where you're sort of like, I don't know if I can get this story. This is too, there's too many people on top of this. Or do you feel like, I know I know how to get this one way or the other. I'm going to end up with a story.
3: No, I was incredibly worried because... Um, it it was hard to get I just remember between October and December when I reported the story I went out to LA I don't know four or five six times I don't know exactly how many times but I was just constantly going out there and spending a few days at a time and at a certain point it was like a Thanksgiving break and then I had to take my daughter with me and and have her in the hotel with a babysitter and stuff it was just it was hard it was it was a really hard story to get because you know um If you if you read, it's not in the article, but if you read the bling ring book, if I may plug. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Which I didn't plan to do, but I'll I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, I mean, I didn't really ever think this story was in a certain way. It's a kind of thin story. I mean, it's so big in a way and so small in a way. And so I didn't really plan to do a book. But um, the you know, the movie was already shot. Sofia Coppola had already shot the movie. It was being edited when an editor at HarperCollins came to me and said, you know, you want to do a book on this, like a movie tie-in book. And I only had six months to do it and I was really scared. I couldn't get it done. I'd never written a book before. So I, and I always wanted to. So I tried, you know, figure I'll give it a shot. and And it became an opportunity for me to talk about these things that we've been talking about in this interview, celebrity culture, obsession with celebrity kind of also, this whole thing of of this obsession with designer brands and luxury goods and and mm-hmm. this crazy um, kind of you know just urge that that a lot of people have to to own these things and have these things that was that was one of the the things about the bling ring that was so interesting to me is that they didn't really steal for money they stole because they wanted to own these things yeah. they wanted to have them and to own a, a bag that belonged to Lindsay Lohan you know.
2: But the movie, so the movie, you know, we, we talked, we were talking about this for a second when you came in before we started, you know, you've had a lot of stories that could have become movies and uh, some of them probably got very close to becoming movies in different arrangements. And then, so did this seem like uh, when you were in the middle of it, like, yeah, this, this, this seems like one, it's got Hollywood in it.
3: No, not really. I, I, I've, I've over the years gotten so many options and They've never worked out. And so it was very exciting in the beginning when it used to happen. Um, and that started in the 90s. And I used to get really excited. Oh, yay. I'm going to make a movie of my piece. But it never happened. And it, never, it was always some disaster and it never worked out. I mean, I don't know. I could like wax astrological about this. It was just like, it just seemed like the gods were against me. And, and sometimes very, very big things. Like I wrote this article called The Baby Dinner about my... This was New York Magazine. Yes, about time, my right? desire to to have a child on my own. And I invited all these guys. Anyway, just read it. <laughs> I, I I asked some of my friends if they would have a baby with me. And and um, uh, so I was going to do this event and have it just privately. And I told my editor at New York Magazine at the time, John Holmans, about it. And he said, oh my God, you've got to write about that. That's just so great. That's just such a great thing. It's so in the zeitgeist now. Women... Trying to have babies on their own. How do I do this? You know, I'm I'm 35 years old. Uh, I'd like to have a baby. What do I do? I'm not married. So, um, we did the piece, and it came out, and it was like, you know, a whole lot of movie interests. I'm just giving you this as one example. Yeah, I mean, it.
2: that one has that like a high concept idea to it that yeah. you can see would be very appealing to yeah. Hollywood. I'm just
3: giving you the 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 show you how this cannot work versus Bling Ring where everything was like yep okay yep okay everything's stars are aligning everything works out and here's the movie I mean it was just like I couldn't believe it because Baby Dinner for example was optioned by Working Title which is an amazing studio that's done like every romantic comedy that's ever been done you know that you four weddings and a funeral uh, and on great company Julia Roberts was set to star Julia Roberts was producing Meg Walters wrote a script um And how could that not get made, especially when it being so in the zeitgeist? But I don't know. It's that it's that crazy thing that happens in Hollywood where things just get messed up and don't work out and schedules and timing and this and that. And I don't know. And then for seven years, it was in development and and it never got made. And eventually it was just dropped because by that point, a whole lot of other people had made I'd like to have a baby movies. And Mm. none of them did very well, including I think one by one with Jennifer Aniston, one with JLo, one with. Oh, you know, oh, just all kinds of people. Heather Graham did one, Madonna did one, and just none of them made money. And so they were just like, yeah, you know, this baby dinner thing—it's kind of over. So that just didn't work out. And and I've had so many, really, so many situations like that. None, none quite as as star-studded as Julia. But
2: so then you you sort of stopped uh, thinking of it as something that was ever going to happen or caring. About it that much
3: call me and say when option your story I'm like okay yeah whatever I mean I just <laughs> I never think that it's gonna happen
2: so now this one has ha- has happened
3: <laughs> well it happened a lot because of Sofia Coppola and her her incredible um, just her incredible ability to get things done and she's she's in a position where she can you know sort of like sort of like Woody Allen in a way I think that she's an unusual person in, in Hollywood especially for a woman because women directors are few and far between, unfortunately, and uh, she's just incredibly good at what she does, and also has an ability to do what she wants. And she wanted to do this, and she did it very quickly too.
2: And it's, I mean, it seems very much like a like a fun a fun thing to have happen, you know, with your story. But is there any? I'm curious if the if there's any downside to it for you, if you feel like either that you sort of get tired of talking about this one thing or don't want to be known for that in the sort of like range of pieces that you've done or if it's sort of an unalloyed good that it feels like, all right, this will enable you to to actually do more and get more stories and and it's just like a nice fun thing to have happened.
3: Well, it doesn't really change anything in terms of magazine work. I mean, I mm-hmm. I am where I am and very happy to be there and it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really change anything, I don't think. You know, it's some people when it doesn't change anything financially, really. I mean, some people when you know, I know when this all started happening. Oh, you're going to quit your job? No, <laughs> that's not that's not the kind of thing we're talking about. It's it's really not like that. It it um it's it's incredibly cool to watch the movie get made, especially since I like the movie so much. And it was really cool that she used so much of my work, like the
2: yeah, the dialogue the dialogue comes straight out of the right. story.
3: Right. The transcripts uh, are, are very much from life. And I think that she made a, a really great decision in doing that because she could see that this dialogue was so fresh and so funny and so alive and so revelatory. And she had these transcripts. And there's a lot that's from the article and there's a lot that's from the transcripts. But she – I love the film. I think it's just an incredibly fun ride and also very, very dark and conveys – you know, in some really similar way, my view of these things and, and how I I view it as as, as really kind of these trends, you know, it's a silly story in a way, but these, these trends are, are sort of really pernicious. And I think that she was able to convey that and oh, and her images are just, just so amazing. And I love the movie. So yeah, that's all really fun, but it doesn't really change anything. I mean, I'm still at the same job doing the same thing. And still trying to get good stories. And it doesn't, you know, the one the one thing that it really did for me that was great was I got to write a book. I did it really fast. I don't think it's the you know, it's the best book I'll ever write. I hope I think I can do better. I think it's I think it's a good book. I don't think it's a great book. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. I think it's I think it's a good book. And I think it's a book about our culture now. And it's a book about I think it's a book worth reading about what's going on in America with kids and with our culture and stuff. But, but what the what the opportunity to, to, do it has done for me is give me a chance to write another one because for whatever reason. And thank you, social media marketing of the bling ring, which made it almost <laughs> a brand. It's selling incredibly well, and that's just it. Do, that does feel good. So the best thing about it is i get a chance to do another one
2: do you know what the, the next one's going to be or you you just know ha- you have that ability and you now you're going to look for the for the idea for it
3: i know what the next one's going to be i think but i don't have a a deal on it yet so i wouldn't want to say in case it changes okay. or something but i know what i want to write about i mean i want to write more stuff about kids cuz that's really where that's really where my interest lies in, in in the main you know i didn't you know i didn't ever think that um, becoming a reporter i would be so interested in writing about youth or kids or children or anything. But I just think it's really interesting and so important. And also, like I said, when I was talking about the the Sophia's, you know, use of the transcripts, teenagers are just great to talk to because they're like experiencing big things for the first time. And so their take on things is often very, very powerful and very true and they speak without a filter, and, and they're, they're just great interviews, and I love to talk to them, so.
2: Has having a kid changed your view of how you do that reporting, or what were those stories, or even your past stories?
3: Yes, a lot, very much so. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I, you know, I'm when I, when I did Prep School Gangsters, I was 32, I think. And um now I'm forty-nine, that's a big difference too. Yeah in who you are and how you see the world and especially becoming a parent and stuff, it, it changes how you're you know, how, how you how you relate to kids and how you see kids and how you I mean, I think I still talk to them in the same way in, in that I'm just trying to talk to them as 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 an equal, as a person, as somebody who's just interested in who you are. But um I think my sense of like the broader picture and the the different influences going into their lives is is maybe a little more layered now. Mm -hmm. And that was what I was able to do, I think, with The Bling Ring Book, is bring a lot of that in because I can see from having a kid, I can see sort of the bigger picture in terms of how this all relates to, oh, what schools are like and what pop culture is like and how all these things affect these kids and what – you know, why – a lot of the prep school gangster stories i'm really just like in the moment with them yeah you know i'm just like right there with them and um now i think having a child of my own i can sort of look at the landscape and see really you know because your kid is not you know you don't live in a bubble with your kid they're going out there in the world every day and they're experiencing this this culture this america that we have and these people in america that we that they come into contact with and though all of that has an influence and effect on them, too. And their peers a lot, especially as they get older. So um, now I think especially with social media, there's, you know, with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all this kind of stuff, uh, there's which kids are so into mm, and yeah. so on all the time, all the time. Not, not my kid, actually, because we talk about it a lot. And <laughs> I don't think it's the best thing probably for them. But. She's dealing with peers who are on it all the time. And um, I just think it has a huge effect. And I'm I'm able to, like, think about those kind of things, I think, in a more sophisticated way than I was when I was a younger person and was not a parent.
2: So one more thing I wanted to ask you, and then I'll let you go because it's really nice outside. Um, you brought up the Prep School Gangsters piece again. And I'm just curious. I mean, this is sort of in the vein of, you know, do you keep up with these, these subjects? There's a p- part in that piece where you say, you literally write something like, what will happen to these where where will these children end up? Where will these teens end up like, and they talk about what, you know some of them like we'll go straight like later we'll go straight into legit businesses and things like that, and I'm just curious, like do you know what happened to them?
3: Yes, I know all of them, I still know them I mean, I don't necessarily have contact with them uh every single one of them, but I have contact with enough of them that I that I hear about the other ones. Um, That was a very intense time for them. And they all really look back on it with a lot of, especially now that they're in their 30s. They're now, interestingly enough, the age that I was when I reported. the story. And a lot of them have reached out to me just recently. And I think that it's because of the the time in their life they're coming to where they can really look back with some perspective. So I guess I do know. And Uh, You know, I I don't want to say what it is, because maybe I will eventually write that book about them that I always wanted to write, and that will be part of it. But I can tell you that what they said was right. Some of them went straight, some of them didn't, some are incredibly successful, and have, you know, uh, you know, have (laughs) used the sort of criminal skills that they (laughs) learned on this running the streets of New York back in the 90s to, to, you know, become very successful businessmen. But, um Some of their lives really ended up tragically, too. And, um, you know, in some weird way, I miss them. Just just hanging around them. That was a a really, really intense, fun time.
2: Yeah. Well, that's a good place to to end. So thanks so much for for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's completely fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. My co hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. And our intern uh, this week is Robin Judlowski. And thanks to Nancy Jo Sales, who is really great and it was very kind of her to come on. And we will see you guys next week.